Turn with me to the book of Philemon. It's right before Hebrews. Hebrews is fairly easy to find towards the end of the Bible. Philemon, it's only one chapter. It's easy to miss over. It's maybe less than a page. And we started it two weeks ago. It's a letter from Paul, the apostle, to a man named Philemon about another man named Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave. He ran away from Philemon, his uh, master, and came to Paul. And now Paul is writing back on Onesimus' behalf. So this book's not very popular in Christianity. And I don't mean that people don't like it. It just, there's not much on it. Not many sermons on it. I can't ever remember hearing a sermon on it. There's very few sermons online to listen to. Commentaries aren't very big, uh, partly because it's a small book and partly because it's not as easily preached as, say, the book of Exodus or 1 Corinthians. But as I've been going through it, I've realized that it is essential to understand what's in the book of Philemon to understand Christianity. Now, when you get to Philemon, one of the big questions is, what do you do about slavery? And the bigger question is, why doesn't the Bible forbid slavery? If you haven't thought of that question, millions of other people have. Why doesn't the Bible forbid slavery? Many Christians took that to mean that slavery was okay. Pastors, Christians, argued from the Bible for slavery. In fact, there was a slave Bible made. And it's interesting that Philemon was not in that slave Bible. The book of Exodus was cut out. The book of Philemon was cut out. And I think it shows us that if you want to understand Christianity, you have to understand Christianity's relationship to slavery. We just spent a year in the book of Exodus. And what's the book of Exodus about? God saving his people from slavery. What does Christ do for us? Frees us from the slavery of sin. The book of Philemon was put in the Bible for a reason. It's about a slave. If you don't understand slavery and Christianity's relationship to it, you really don't understand Christianity. And as we go out into the world, many people have rejected Christianity because they view it as a white man's religion. Because for so long, white slave owners used Christianity to protect slavery. And so uh, religions like the Nation of Islam, Black Hebrew Israelites are reactions to a version of Christianity that protected slavery. So what does the Bible say about it, though? We're going to see three things in this passage. The the effectiveness of love, the cost of love, and the dynamics of love. Because that's what Christianity is about. It's about love. So let's read it. We're going to read verses 8 through 16. It's the heart of the letter. Verse 8, therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him. 
that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for you for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to you, to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul wants Philemon to do something. That's the whole point of his letter. He wants Philemon to do something. How does he get Philemon to do what he wants? So, so Onesimus has run away from his master, and he's come to Paul. Paul is sending him back with this letter. He wants Philemon to do something. I believe he wants him to, well, we'll get to what he wants him to do. Many of us would like Paul to say clearly, free him. And there's the real catch. Why doesn't Paul just say free him? But whatever it is that Paul wants him to do, notice how he gets it across. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet, for love's sake, I rather appeal. When Paul wants something to change, what does he rely on? What is the most effective way to get Philemon to do what Paul thinks he should do? He says, for love's sake. Notice in this whole book, he's talking about a social issue, slavery, a legal, social, civic thing. Notice how he approaches it. Now, this is very instructive for us because we've got social issues too, not to mention the history. What Paul does is he says there's a social issue. Now, go back to, chapter, to, to verse 2. He says, to Philemon, the problem, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to beloved Aphia, probably his wife, Archippus, probably the pastor, and to the church in your house. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying, here's a social issue, and I'm bringing it to the church. I'm not just preaching the gospel, because the gospel doesn't just stay in a box. When a social issue comes up where justice is needed, he brings it to the church. That's what Lloyd Lewis says. He says, Paul has taken a social issue and made it an issue for the church. We do not separate our lives between Bible issues and social issues. We bring social issues into the church. Now, that's controversial sometimes, but that's what Paul does. The legal problem, see, a runaway slave had no rights, was the very lowest member of the society in, in Roman times. And if you harbored a fugitive, you had problems. So we're talking legal problems. Paul has legal problems. There's laws being broken. He brings that into the church. There are relationships broken. There are social issues that Paul brings into the church. Throughout the whole book of Philemon, you know what he doesn't do? He never talks about the government. When Paul wants Philemon to handle a legal matter, a matter of justice, a matter of slavery, a matter of relationships between oppressed classes, he doesn't even mention the government. Now think about that. 
the Roman government controlled everything. We think our government's maybe too overbearing. Do we have soldiers posted outside of everywhere? Would you get your hands chopped off, your head cut off, crucified if you broke the law? You see, the Roman government was a dictatorship. It was a totalitarian government. It was a tyrant. You did not defy them. They had all the the civic and legal power. They took all your money when they wanted to. They could do whatever they wanted to you. Paul doesn't even mention them. Now, it's not because it's not related to the government. He's talking about a, a law being broken, and he wants a social relationship to change, yet he never mentions society or the government. He pretends like the Roman government doesn't matter. When Paul wants something to change, he doesn't go to the government for the change. He goes to the church. So when we see injustices happening, and the first thing we jump to is government, we're missing the point here. There's something more powerful for social change than the government. But then look what he says. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you, Paul is an apostle. That means Jesus Christ himself personally said to Paul, face to face, Paul, go tell everybody what I want. What you say is what I say. Paul is Christ's representative on earth. You listen to Paul like you listen to Jesus. That's why we're reading from Paul's letter and preaching from it. Practically speaking, these are Christ's words. Paul has what's called apostolic authority. He's an apostle. There's no more left. They all died. Paul was the last one. He had more authority than any other person on earth. Philemon was a member of one of Paul's churches that he started, which means that that Paul could have legitimately said to Philemon, on behalf of Christ, I command you to do the right thing. But he doesn't. When we want to change someone, in the deepest way, quoting the scriptural authority to them is not the way to do it. Now listen carefully, because this is jarring. Paul does not use his scriptural authority to get Philemon to do what he wants. He said there's something more powerful than authority. There's something more powerful than even the scriptures to get people to change. Now, Was Paul authoritative? Absolutely. Are the scriptures authoritative? Absolutely. 100% God's word. But authority does not accomplish what is needed. Paul says, I could command you, yet, for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you. When you want people to truly change, you do not tell them what to do. You love them. Love is what changes people, not power, not authority. You see, we've got a lot of social issues that we would like to see addressed, and our first place to go is to change the laws. Because if we can get the government to enforce them, that's real change, isn't it? That's change we can see. Or, as Christians will say, well, the Bible says, therefore you must. Paul is saying, stop. You've missed the point. The point of Christianity is not to hit people over the head with a hammer. It's to change them. And love is what changes people. Paul wants Philemon to change the relationship he has with Onesimus. Not just 
externally. You see, we want Paul to say, Philemon, free him. Paul wants something bigger. Let's compare it to a, to a slave issue closer. When slavery existed in America from 1500 until 16, uh, 1865, everyone wanted slavery to go away, or not everyone, the people who were being oppressed by it wanted it to go away. And eventually the government forced it by the sword, by authority, to make it go away, which was a good thing. But because there was no love involved, look what happened afterwards. Jim Crow, segregation, sharecropping, economic disaster. Why? Because they use authority to change the situation instead of love. What Paul is trying to do is not just make Onesimus free. He's trying to avoid Jim Crow. He's trying to avoid, he's trying to get rid of the problem from the inside out. Love is what will change the dynamic, not authority. That's what Martin Luther King understood. He understood that, yes, the laws need to change, but more importantly, people needed to love each other. King said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. It wasn't just about separating two enemies. That's what the government can do. It can separate you from your enemies. What Paul wants is to make friends, to change the very hearts of the people in the, in the problem so that there's reconciliation. Brother Warren always says it's not just about desegregation. It's about integration. You see, if Paul had told Philemon, free Onesimus, what would have happened to Onesimus? He would have been kicked out of the house and starved to death. There was no place for him to go. He would have to come back to Philemon as a free man with no money. And you know what a free man with no money is? A slave. He's an economic slave. That's what sharecropping was. It was like, you're free, but you have to work on my land on my terms. Slavery didn't go away. It just changed its name. So what, what Paul is saying is, Philemon, I want you to stop the dynamic, the relationship, and have a new relationship, and that only happens through love. What do we want from people? We want their hearts to change. How's that going to happen? Not the government, not the text of Scripture, but love. Justin Gibney, a black theologian, says, any way you look at it, using the example here, black people have been enslaved in this country longer than we've been free. That's one thing we have to understand. Then you have to understand the nature of slavery. The nature of slavery wasn't just about physical bondage. It was about psychological warfare. And that psychological warfare does not go away in a generation or two. See, if you think slavery is just about chains and physical captivity, then you think the answer is just remove the chains. But it's deeper than that. And what Paul is trying to do is not just free Onesimus. He's trying to create a life where everyone's living together, helping each other, growing together in love. The psychological aspect is just as important as the physical aspect. And as a church, if we don't realize that psychological issues will not go away because authority is enforced, we're going to keep on going back to authority. We're never going to deal with the root of the problem. We're going to look at the external and say, well, the external looks fine, and never get to the heart. What the Bible is saying is love is how you become a Christian. 
It's how you live as a Christian, and it's how you change people, and it's how you fix problems. You want a unified church? Love each other. You want to heal from, from hurt? Love each other. That's how it's done. Love is the most effective means of change. When you hear issues, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? When I say immigration, the solution to immigration, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Is it the government? When I say the poor, helping the poor, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Is it the government? You're working backwards. When Paul has a social issue, he goes to the church and he appeals to love. Test yourself. Work towards saying, here's a problem. What's the answer? The first answer should be loving one another in the church. And if your answer is something else, you're straying from Scripture. And you're straying from the solution. The answer to problems are not on the right, and the answer to problems are not on the left. Those are man-made divisions. The answers to the problems are the love of God. And that is found in the church. That's what Paul wants. That's what God wants. But loving people costs something. It changes people, but it costs. And look at the cost here. So Paul, look at his situation. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you, or verse 9, I appeal to you being such a one as Paul, the aged. He's old. And he's old in a way that you get from being beaten a lot. Hard physical labor, hard physical treatment ages you very quickly. So he's probably 60 or 70, but from a life of, of abuse. And now also a prisoner. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Paul is physically in bondage. He's, he's weak. He's old. He's trying to minister to people. And Onesimus was helping him. And he wasn't just helping him physically. He says, I'm sending you uh, Onesimus. That is my own heart. What Paul is doing is he's saying, I love Onesimus like a son. And he says, and he ministers to me in my chains. I need him to help me live. He says, I'm sending him back. I'm giving him up. You see, love is not just a nice idea. It means sacrifice. And Paul here says, I'm sending you my heart and my hands. Someone who has helped me get through the day, I'm giving him up for love. Giving up someone who was so close to him, he describes him as his own heart. Paul doesn't know if he's ever going to get him back. He said, I'm willing to sacrifice it because I love you. He says, Philemon, I love you so much, I'm going to give up the one person who's closest to me. But look at Onesimus. Onesimus didn't have to go back. Onesimus is risking not just his freedom, but his life. You know, a slave owner could kill a runaway slave with no repercussions? Nothing. So when Onesimus is going back, he's putting his life into Philemon's hands. He's risking everything because he loves Philemon. You see how much love takes? Yes, it's the most powerful force for change, and it can change anything. But look how much it requires of you. Love cost. And Paul and, Phi and, and Onesimus had so much love that they were willing to risk everything for it. 
There is no safe Christianity. If you're safe, you're not a Christian or you're not living like a Christian. Paul and Philemon were willing to, or Paul and Onesimus were willing to bet everything on the gospel. They're saying, we believe the love that Christ has shown us through the gospel. We believe it so much that we're putting our life on the line. That's how much we believe it. We're putting our relationships on the line. Why? To save Philemon's soul. Philemon was the slave master. Do you know what owning slaves does to your soul? It destroys it. Throughout history, those who have oppressed people have destroyed themselves. Practical ways like suicide and, and drug abuse and alcoholism. Why? Because you can't mistreat people for that long and not be changed. And so Philemon was being corrupted by his own sin. And so Paul and Onesimus said, we'll risk our life to save you. Why? Why would they do that? Because Christ did that. Christ said, you people on earth are so bad, you deserve to go to hell. But I'm going to come down there and risk my life, put everything on the line to save you. And that's what Christ did. To free us from sin. And now Paul and Onesimus have been changed by that truth, and so they turn around and they love Philemon the same way. But that's not all they do. You see, loving someone is not just risking for them, it's calling for them to change. Philemon had to change to be freed from this oppressive slavery where he was hurting himself. Why would Philemon have trouble giving up his slave? Why does slavery exist? Greed. Greed creates slavery. It created it in America, and it created it in Rome. Philemon was making money off of Onesimus. And Paul is saying, treat him like a brother, no longer as a slave. That means Philemon had to love Onesimus more than he loved money, more than he loved status. This is what America did not do. America claimed to be a Christian nation, yet supported slavery. Does that mean slavery and Christianity are compatible? No, it means you have to change one or the other. And America chose to change Christianity to protect slavery. Morgan Godwin, a pastor in 1685 in Virginia, wrote a sermon he said, in America, trade is preferred before religion, and Christ made to give place to mammon. Mammon is money. He said, all these Christians in Virginia are choosing money over Christ. But what happens then? You call yourself a Christian, but you support slavery because of the money that you need from it. So you have to change something. So in 1706, at least six colonies passed acts denying that baptism altered the condition of a slave. Because if Philemon is true and a slave is your brother, you can't treat him like a slave, can you? Then you'll lose him. And so Christians said, no, no, no. You don't have to lose him as a slave. So they said, we want to preach the gospel to slaves, but we want them to stay slaves. So they passed the act that says just because you're a Christian doesn't make you free. 
expressing the hope that diverse masters, freed from doubt, may more carefully endeavor the propagation of Christianity among the slaves. What was the doubt? The doubt was that if you preach the gospel, that slaves would realize they shouldn't be slaves. And so pastors passed laws and helped pass laws to protect the two. They corrupted Christianity. Winthrop Jordan says, These clergymen in the 1700s had been forced by the circumstances of racial slavery in America into propagating the gospel by presenting it as an attractive device for slave control. That means the famous preachers that helped us free ourselves from England, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, our heroes, corrupted Christianity to protect slavery. Now, you could say that was in the past, but when you celebrate Thanksgiving on Tuesday and you talk about the pilgrims and not talk about the slaves, you're creating a myth. You're creating an America that can allow Christianity to promote and support slavery. So it's not in the past any more than Thanksgiving's in the past, any more than the 4th of July is in the past. Why? Christianity changes everything. And if you want to protect the industry, the money, the property, the status, you have to change Christianity and corrupt it. Paul is calling Philemon to choose love of a brother over love of money. When you hear of people not like you threatening to take things from you, what's your reaction? You don't like it, do you? If the first reaction you have to immigration is that they're going to take your money, your status, your property, your health care, you, you are headed down the path to slavery. You see, nobody in the 17, 18, 1900s thought they were doing anything wrong. They did not realize they'd made money a god, and their Christianity molded itself around that god. You don't just wake up one day and enslave people. You seek money, and you seek money, and you do what you have to, and the next thing you know, you're stepping on people to get money. The Bible has warned us, the love of money is the root of all evil. Do you think your exception, do you think that doesn't apply to us? That somehow we don't love money like they loved money? We're no different. We study history because we are the same people as them in a different situation. We look to history to say, what did they mess up? Where did they miss Christianity so that we don't miss it? They loved money, not people. Do we love people or do we love money? And if you find yourself worrying that people are going to take what's yours, that becomes your priority. You are headed down the road they were headed down. And the Bible is calling us back. Paul is saying to Philemon, Choose your brother over your money. Choose your brother over your status. Philemon was one of the most privileged people in the world. He had a large house, which means he was a landowner. He had slaves. He was a citizen. Paul is saying, treat a slave like one of your people, which is embarrassing, isn't it? Give up your status for a slave. Why? 
because they're brothers. It costs something to be a Christian. And if you're not willing to pay that price, you'll corrupt Christianity like America did. So it's the effectiveness of love. It's the cost of love. But look at the dynamics of love. Look what it does in a relationship. Verse 15. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. People say the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. Yes, it does. It absolutely forbids and condemns slavery, and it does it right here. The only way you can get around this is to think that you are going to take your family member who you love and beat them and put them in chains to work for you with no pay. If you can reconcile those two, then okay, the Bible doesn't forbid slavery. But if you think you can treat a beloved brother like a slave, no, you can't. The Bible condemns slavery by showing you that a slave is a person that's out of sorts. They're not being treated like who they are. And if you see who they are, you can't treat them like a slave. Why did slavery exist so long after the Bible? You see, American slavery was worse than Roman slavery. After 1,500 years of the Bible being preached and taught, America came up with a worse form of slavery. Don't think that we're past those sorts of things. American race-based chattel slavery was the worst form of slavery we've seen, created by a Christian nation. And what did they have to do? They had to choose people that looked different and treat them like they were different so they could never admit that they were the same because that would have destroyed slavery, just like God wanted. Onesimus has been changed by the gospel. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. He's been redeemed. He's been changed into a Christian. Now, the word Onesimus, it's a common name for slaves. It means useful. It means profitable. You would name your slave that and hope that they would bring you profit. But Onesimus was not profitable, was he? He, he ran away. Verse 11, who once was unprofitable. So the profitable one, Onesimus, was, once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. You see, the gospel had changed Onesimus because that's what the gospel does. It changes you. It didn't change Onesimus' situation. It changed Onesimus. The gospel does not promise you a different place in life. It promises you a different you. It changed the very character of this man. And so Paul says, Onesimus is now a brother. He's profitable. Just like he called Philemon a brother. No distinction now, is there? Philemon and Onesimus are the same. Brothers. Because they've been brought into Christ. And a new identity brings a new relationship. A new identity brings a new relationship. If the relationship hasn't changed, the identity hasn't changed. In Portsmouth, Virginia, 1828, so now we're 100 years later than the stuff we were talking about. We've already had the Great Awakening. We've had the Second Great Awakening. Christianity has taken off in America. Things have changed, right? Surely a hundred years of the gospel being preached and America being 
revived will change things. Here's what the Portsmouth Baptist Association says in Virginia in 1828. Whereas the constitution of independent and colored churches in this state and in their representation in this body involves a great point of delicacy, black churches must be represented in this association through white men. What? Why? Because they did not see what Philemon is being told. That when you're a Christian, you're a brother. And there are no two different kinds of brothers. There's one kind. Now, why does he use the word brother? Because the son of the king gets everything the king gets. So you want to be called the son of the king. So I know if you're a lady, you don't feel like a son, but you want the authority of a son. That's what God promises you. That's what American Christians couldn't get. They couldn't understand that skin color does not change your standing with God. And that skin color should not change your standing in the church. That seems obvious, doesn't it? So how did these men miss it? Because they didn't understand the gospel. And if they didn't understand it, then we could miss it. New identity brings new relationships. It's insu- Mitzi Smith says it's insufficient to name or rename oppressions. It's not just enough to say that was wrong or we're new people in Christ without changing the nature of the social relationships and oppressive systems. You can't just say we're all one in Christ, but we're going to sit in different parts of the church. Now, this may seem like a long time ago, but you've got books. If you've been in the church for a while, you've got books on your shelves of theologians promoting this. Do you have John R. Rice in your house? John R. Rice is teaching this sort of segregation. Jack Hiles, Billy Graham, they taught segregation. It's not that far past. Matthew Henry, Ian Bounds, these men who we have and we read after are doing the same thing that they did 300, 400 years ago. Sin does not disappear because you don't talk about it. Sin disappears when you name it, you repent of it, and you change the relationships. You don't do that, it doesn't go away. Racism will remain for as long as we don't deal with it. And as long as we honor men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, George Washington, without dealing with their sin, John R. Rice, Lee Robertson, these men were racist. They promoted and enforced segregation. If you were black, you could not go to Tennessee Temple. You had to go to a different school. Martin Luther King was not allowed to study with independent Baptists. He was rejected from Bob Jones. That's not that long ago. That's our lifetime. We're learning from men who promoted segregation. We're creating a denomination based on racism. What's the answer? The Bible is always the answer. What was wrong with those men? They missed this part of the Bible. So our solution is to go to the part of the Bible they missed and reveal it to ourselves. And the part that we're missing is that a Christian is a brother, and brothers are all the same, and they need to be treated the same, and everything about the church should promote equality. And anything in the church that does not promote equality is anti-gospel.
anti-gospel. Paul makes it so clear. He said, he's a beloved brother, especially to you, to me, but much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is what so many people can't say, like, oh, we're brothers in Christ, but you're still my slave. We're brothers in Christ, but we want two separate churches. John R. Rice taught that black people should have their own church and that white people should have their own church. Why? Because he saw your brothers in the Lord, but he missed the words in the Bible that said your brothers in the flesh. God saved our bodies and our souls. We have to deal with this because God dealt with it. The reason slavery existed in a, in a country full of churches is because they missed the gospel. And the reason racism will continue to exist in churches is because we do not confront it with the gospel. Barnes says there's no power out of the church that could sustain slavery an hour if it were not sustained in it. That's the whole point of Philemon. Philemon Paul is saying the church can fix this problem. The church can fix slavery. And the church could have fixed slavery in America. It could have. It had the power. It had love. It had the gospel. It could have done it, but it didn't. So when we celebrate Thanksgiving and we celebrate the pilgrims, remember that the pilgrims were racist. And the pilgrims did not understand the complete gospel. So take care when we adopt their religion. Let's make sure we're following the Bible religion. What's the, what's the basis of all this? Christ came into this world to die for sinners. There's your distinction. Christ and sinners. That's it. And if you are a believer, then you have been brought to Christ's side. And every other believer, no matter what they look like, what they sound like, anything, they're on Christ's side. So we have a choice. Are we on Christ's side or are we on the other side? Let's pray.